the people who know God and the people who don't. John chapter 7, 25 to 36. This is part uh, 32 in our work through the wonderful uh, epistle from John. John 7, 25 to 36. I hope you have a Bible with you. Some of the people from Jerusalem, therefore, said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So this can't be the right person. 28. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me, you know where I'm from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. Interesting that Jesus feels, we would say, that's a pretty judgmental thing to say, right? And Jesus just says, you, 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 you don't know God. Quite a, quite a bold statement. Twenty-nine. I know him. For I came from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because, well, his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Doesn't seem possible. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him, 33. And Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we won't find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me, you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? It's a very involved, convoluted kind of a text. I think it will help us to know the different players, to make sense of the mixed responses to Jesus. Remember, he's at the Feast of Booths. We looked at that in our last study in John. There are three groups of people in this morning's text. And they each play a role, and it helps to keep track of them. First, there are Jews who resided in Jerusalem or the immediate area. John calls them, in verse 25, he calls them the people of Jerusalem. That's that's how he identifies this group, the people of Jerusalem. They aren't the ones trying to kill Jesus, but they are... They're in the loop in terms of knowing the tension between Jesus and the leaders. 25b, is not this man the one whom they, 
the religious leaders seek to kill. They're not trying to kill him, but they know what's going on. So they're watching all of this with the understanding of insiders, seeing the situation unfold. They're interested in it. Secondly, our text talks about the religious leaders. They're concerned about the uprising Jesus might cause among their peaceful, prosperous religious system under Rome. They're introduced in verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not come. They're even more clearly identified in verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. So there's the people of Jerusalem who see what's going on, the conflict that's forming. There's the religious leaders who want to get rid of Jesus, period. But there's more. There's this third group. They're described in verse 31. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man's done? Doesn't seem possible. So remember, this was one of three major Jewish feasts, the Feast of Booths. There were Jews from many of the outlying areas who had traveled a great distance to get to Jerusalem. And because these Jews weren't from Jerusalem, they're probably less aware of the growing, brewing tension regarding Jesus. They're impressed. They come to believe because they couldn't imagine anyone coming and performing greater works than this man had done. 31, yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? So I think it helps to remember, these are the key players, these three groups in our text today, and it helps to frame the varied responses of Jesus. So here, sorry, Here are some lessons from the text. One, mistaken preconceived notions about Jesus Christ can block the mind to his eternal redemptive work. I'm looking at 25 to 27. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. Can it be, so wondering, that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know, we know where this man comes from, okay? And when the Christ comes, the real Messiah, no one will know where he comes from. So there, they're deducing here. There's a lot of, subterfuge in these words. The local Jerusalem Jews almost taunt the hesitation of the authorities in arresting Jesus. Here he is speaking openly, as openly as it gets, and the leaders aren't lifting a finger to shut him up. And so they taunt. Could it be they actually believe he's the Messiah? 26? Of course, that wasn't the case. The authorities were merely while biding their time. They couldn't nab Jesus while many of the pilgrim Jews were fascinated and thrilled with the signs and wonders and words of Jesus. And even the Jews who made this taunt rejected Jesus as the Christ. 
we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. And now we come to this first main point. These local Jews embraced the idea that the Messiah would eventually come. They believed that. But he wouldn't come the way Jesus came. The true Messiah would come in great earthly power, political might. His earthly identity would be mysterious, shrouded in the sheer brightness of his reign over the Jewish people. This was their problem with Jesus standing right in front of them. Jesus, they knew. They knew where he came from. They knew his background. They knew his earthly place, rather humble at that. They knew his work maybe in carpentry. They knew his family. Some of them may have even remembered the rumors that floated around when young Mary was pregnant out of wedlock. So in other words, their ideas of Jesus, the way they saw him, maybe as a great moral teacher, these ideas made it impossible for them to see Jesus as anything more than a religious leader, a prophet, a moral teacher. This earthly Jesus couldn't be God's promised Messiah. And here's the thing. They could have known better. They were unacquainted with their own Old Covenant scriptures that pointed to the coming suffering Messiah. And thus it has ever been. Consider this. Jesus today is almost universally granted historic identity, almost universally. He certainly walked this earth. Most people admire what we have preserved of the sayings of Jesus, the golden rule, the Sermon on the Mount. There's the way we think of Jesus when we think of the poor and the needy, his call to give being better than the call to receive. Nothing offensive about any of that. No talk of his broken body or shed blood being the only ransom for sin. No talk of him ascended, returning to judge all mankind. No talk of Jesus delivering us from the wrath of a just, holy God. No talk of every knee bowing and every tongue confessing that he is Lord. Never mind that he said, except you believe that I am he, you will die in your sin. No. Then as now, when all people see is this side of Jesus, the selfless moral teaching the glorious example, it, it, it's almost impossible to get the whole picture of his divine nature and work. When you're committed to only embracing a part of the story, you can't, you can't get the whole story. Like those in Jerusalem. We know where this man comes from. When the Messiah comes, nobody's going to know. And so they cling to their commonly held religious opinions. And that's why they're removed from divine light and life. People still do that. Let me just try and apply it as humbly as I can. Let, let, 
Make sure you let the real Jesus confront you today. Let the real Jesus speak. Let, let him shake you up about unconfronted sin or compromise. That's how his divine grace begins its beautiful, freeing work. You have to embrace the real Jesus. Two. There is one truth about Jesus the Christ that is most resisted by the spirit of this present age. I'm looking at 28 and 29. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me. And you know where I come from. But he's saying something different than they're saying. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true. And him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him. He has sent me. There's a powerful sentence that, that kind of needs to be seen from two angles in these verses. It's in 28. You know me, and you know where I come from. I think there are two thoughts here. They have just stated they knew Jesus' earthly origins, 27. We know where this man comes from. But Jesus sees, you know more than that. They know more than they want to admit. This plot against Jesus has been brewing for some time. It goes right back to the healing of the lame man on the Sabbath in John 5. We studied that. These people, they saw the power of Jesus. They saw his works. They knew more about Jesus than they were willing to embrace and submit to. Happens a lot. That's what Jesus means when in a different sense than they say it, he says in verse 28, you know me and you know where I come from. These people could see the unordinariness probably not a word, of Jesus. That's his point. Their blindness is willful. His being the sent Messiah from Father God, it's been obvious for anybody to see. What Jesus means is, against the very best evidence, they wouldn't embrace the light they had seen they wouldn't admit that they had seen it because their present prejudice wouldn't bend, wouldn't repent, wouldn't humble itself. To see Jesus coming as God the Son and dying precisely at the feast of Passover as the Lamb of God for their sin, it required more than just knowledge. It demanded repentance and submission and humility Repentance was hard for these proud religious people. It still is. The need to bow, the need to repent, that's still the real reason people don't come to Jesus. It's the real reason they deconstruct. My, my point here is there's an edge to Jesus' words when he says, you both know me and where I come from. 28. And those words are just designed to pin them in their own guilt. Jesus pointed, but compassionate words are pressing the point. His desire to 
warn of the peril of their growing, growing blindness and resistance. And here's what we all need to take home from church. Here's what I need to take home from church. It's a dangerous thing to pretend not to know when God reveals truth to your heart. It's easy to pretend not to know, but it's dangerous to pretend not to know. Don't play dumb when the Holy Spirit speaks to your conscience. Don't ignore issues of Christ's ongoing sanctifying work. Don't, don't, don't push past the call to repent, pretending that religion is enough or social justice is enough when God is speaking to your heart about something. Three. To reject the truth about Jesus is to reject the only way to know God. Now we begin to see Jesus unfold what's at stake, and there's a lot at stake. He talks about it in 28 to 30. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him. He sent me. So they, so they were seeking to arrest him. I'm not listening to this stuff. But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Okay, so now we need all of us. We need to stop, get our brains focused. How does Jesus know these people don't know God? What a nervy thing to say. Him you do not know, 28. They don't know God precisely because they're rejecting Jesus. That's it. They don't know God because they're rejecting Jesus. That's what Jesus knows emphatically. What they do with Jesus is what they do with God. There are no pious words or religious practices that can compensate for rejecting the truth about Jesus Christ. There, there is no other worship or sacrifice or moral adaptation that's acceptable to God if the Son is ignored. And so these Jewish worshipers were attending a religious festival. Remember that. They're at a religious festival when Jesus says, you don't know God. They might have come a long way to come to this religious festival. They're devoted, aren't they? I mean, they're there. Just look two texts back. 28b and 29. I have come of my own accord. He who sent me is true. And him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. Now, look at these words from the apostle John in John 17, 3. Do you see the similarity here? This is eternal life 
that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Very same theme repeated, almost word for word. Eternal life. Apparently, this is, this is eternal life. Eternal life hangs in the balance. Nothing else could be clearer. Eternal life comes from responding to this connection between Father God and the sent Son. There's no life apart from this living, redemptive connection. If the Son isn't sent from the Father, his words carry nothing unique. If the Father didn't send the Son, then we remain under divine wrath and guilt. That's why, that's why John says, John 17, 3, this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Four, the importance of recognizing your time of opportunity. Look at John 7, 32 to 36. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Then Jesus said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You'll seek me, you won't find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you'll seek me, you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? This idea of Jesus going away and people not being able to find him is repeated three times in John's account. So in other words, Jesus used this terminology over and over, which indicates the importance of it in his mind. The first occasion I just read to you in John 7. Here's, here's another occasion where he uses the same words just a chapter and a half later with even sterner feel to them. John 8, 19 to 24 they said to him, therefore, where is your father? Does this sound familiar? Jesus answered, you neither know me nor my father. You don't, you don't know God. Look at, if you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him. Same thing, because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I'm going away. Same thing. You will seek me. Look what he says here. This is sterner. And you will, say that with me. You'll die in your sin. Wow. I think if Jesus were alive today, physically I mean, alive today, standing, he would never have a mega church. I don't think people would come and listen to him. You will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. He's not done yet. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from below. 
I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you, and he says the same thing again, that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, again, you will die in your sins. You see how many times he says that? So very clearly here, Jesus addresses the high cost of rejecting Jesus. He says it more than churches say it. You believe I'm, you, you have to believe it's here. Put your trust in me. What if you don't? You'll die in your sins. Two sentences later, you have to follow me. What if not? You'll die in your sins. So the eternal, costly bondage of willful unbelief. The people have had opportunity piled on top of opportunity to see Jesus as the Messiah, God the Son, but they won't see him that way. Jesus says because they're looking for their kind of messianic deliverer from Rome, they will never find him as the lamb who could take away their sins. And so, 21, 23, two times, then you'll die in your sins. You can't, the point, of course, is you can't get rid of your sins any other way. What are you going to do with your sins if you don't go to Jesus? Jesus uses the same, I said there were three occasions. He uses the same words again, speaking to his disciples, but in a comforting way. The same words with a different emphasis. John 13, still in John, 33 to 36. Little children, okay, there's a different audience. Yet a little while I'm with you. And then the same thing. You will seek me just as, just as I said to the Jews... So now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you're my disciples. You love one for another. Now Peter, he can't can't get away from this, you're going away and we can't follow. 36, Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? It's a fair question. Jesus answered him, where I'm going, look at, different. You cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. It's different. It's different. Jesus is going to die and ascend to the Father. He has done that. And for now, we're all in the same boat. Believer, unbeliever, we're stuck here. We haven't gone anywhere. But the leaving isn't the same because the separation isn't final. Jesus will leave. He will go to the cross, the grave. He will rise. He will ascend to his father, going away. But here, this This won't bring a permanent separation from believers any more than my own death will bring a permanent separation from the Lord. We'll follow. We'll follow. But notice in our John 7 text, going back to today's text, there wasn't any comfort in Jesus' words. 
I, I, I can ignore Jesus too stubbornly. I choose to. Foolish hearts harden. People who reject the kind of redeemer the Father sends. People who look to Jesus for ideas and moral principles and religious words only. Those false believers will never find forgiveness of sins that they desperately need. They will die in their sins. So says Jesus three times. Church needs to recover, rediscover, I guess, the urgency of bringing the real Jesus to this world. Jesus himself, the one who said he knew the Father in a way no one else did, verse 29. That, Jesus said, everyone in this church has one hope. They all need to come to the real Jesus, the Lamb of God who rose from the grave, ascended to the Father, is coming back to judge the world. That Jesus is the only one who can deliver me or you or anyone else from their sins. That's why knowing him, Jesus said, this is eternal life. 